We are concluding our time in the book of Genesis, 21 weeks, we're coming to an end. The title for today's message is the same title that we've been using for this little segment of our series, The Gospel of Jacob. I do want to mention that if you're interested in hearing more about Joseph's life, uh, if you go onto the Grace Life website, you can find a series that Derek Lewandowski preached through a number of years ago called The Gospel of Joseph. And uh, you can fill in the gaps because uh, we're going to kind of skip over Joseph's life. But um, you can find all those on the website. Um, As well, I want to mention on March 6th, I know all of you are wanting this information, but um, I will have surgery on my shoulder um, this, uh, yeah, so week and a half, two weeks, something like that. Um, They're going to clean it all out, good stuff. Hopefully we'll be uh, bouncing back to semi-normal here soon, so... Maybe my days of being in a sling are coming to an end. We'll find out. Um, And as well, to kind of give you an idea of where we're going from here in our our preaching schedule, we'll be going into a four-week topical series called Equipped. Uh, Next week, we'll begin that. And we're going to be looking at the topics of ministry, the body, the gifts of the Spirit, um, all those things. And uh, after that, we will begin a series in the book of Revelation. So uh, stay tuned. More to come. Today, we'll survey the last years of Jacob's life, and we're going to do that by looking at the broken man and a healed man. A broken man and a healed man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning uh, that we could be together, that we could be here to encourage one another in the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we hear many voices throughout the week. We hear uh, many distractions throughout the week. One of the loudest voices is the voice of the accuser. And so, Lord, we need to be reminded of what you say, your voice. And so I ask that you would still our hearts this morning, that you would quiet us so that we could hear your voice. And, uh, Lord, I ask that you would use uh, my brothers and sisters to speak for your voice to each other, to encourage one another in the good news this morning. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. A broken man. So we last saw Jacob limping away from his nighttime wrestling match with this mysterious man revealed later to be God. Jacob is given the name Israel, which means God fighter. And Jacob had wrestled with God and he had prevailed. He had won. He was reunited with his brother Esau and they were reconciled. And this, though, was not the end of Jacob's story, nor was it the end of Jacob's scheming, his being a heel. This is a reoccurring pattern. Uh, Because last week was not the eucatastrophe, I shared that word last week, the final happy ending uh, that we might hope for. This family would come to know more scheming, more hardship, more loss, and more dysfunction, and more brokenness. What we'll cover today will be a flyover of the last 40 years of Jacob's life as we draw his story to an end. In chapter 33, Jacob and his family settled near the Canaanite city of Shechem. In chapter 34, the prince of that city took Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and he raped her. And then he sought to cover it up by marrying her. Her brothers, Simeon and Levi, plotted their revenge. They convinced the prince that in order for him to marry Dinah, 
he and all the men would need to be circumcised. And uh, on day three, Simeon and Levi snuck into the city and they slaughtered everyone, all the men, um, not the women and children. Um, the women and children and animals were uh, taken and added to the family of Israel. And perhaps one of the more shocking parts of this story is Jacob's silence during the whole matter. Jacob remains silent and later shows anger towards Simeon and Levi for their part in this. And if you read through his response in chapter 34, it's all about Jacob. It's all about his reputation. It's all about his name in the community. The heel had remained. In chapter 35, God tells Jacob to go to Bethel and dwell there. If you remember, Bethel was the place uh, where 20-some years before, Jacob had slept uh, in the middle of nowhere, and God visited him in a vision in the middle of the night. And Bethel would go on to be a very significant place. And so God tells him to go back to Bethel. As they journey, we're told that the neighboring peoples all greatly feared this family of Israel. Obviously, they had heard the story of what happened at Shechem. And so we'll pick up the story in Genesis 35, uh, beginning in verse 9. And we'll read there. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Uh, and actually in most translations it says um, he names it El Bethel. So he adds El to the beginning of Bethel, um, kind of renaming the place that he had named 20 years prior. So again, it's at Bethel, the house of God, that God appears to Jacob. And it seems like in verse 13 that this was another physical appearance. It, it was another Christophany, the messenger that we've seen over and over throughout this story, even back to Abraham. Um, the messenger has again come to Jacob. And here God reminds Jacob of his promises to him. God is restating to Jacob the name that he's given him. He called him Israel because he fought with God and men and prevailed. He tells him to be fruitful and multiply. God is taking this family and turning them into a nation. And this nation comes from Israel's own body, Jacob. He will give this land to him and to his offspring. And Jacob responds as God had commanded him actually earlier in the chapter by building an altar. And this altar served as a memorial. Memorials are a reminder, a, a means of telling a story again hearkening back to last week when we talked about the storytelling God. Jacob needed constant reminding over and over and over. And praise God that he constantly reminds. Consider for a moment, how often does God restate the covenant promises? First in Abraham's life, we saw it at least four or five times in the chapters that we've looked at. And there were also the chapters we didn't look at that had more memorials and more reminders. We saw in Isaac's story, though very brief, that God reminded him at least twice. Jacob has been told and retold four or five times now, and again, that's just in the places we've covered. God is always doing with this with us as well. He's always reminding us of his word, of his promises, 
of his goodness, of his faithfulness. You see, it's not enough to hear the gospel once or twice in your lifetime and then be like, I got it, I'm good. Um, I'll figure the rest out as I go. That's not going to work. You need the gospel often, as often as possible. The Sunday gathering and a gospel sermon is good, but it's insufficient. It's not enough. We need to constantly hear and remind others of the good news of Jesus. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we have each other. To constantly remind each other of what Jesus has done. Because we are a forgetful people. Author Chad Bird, I've quoted him a lot. He shares um, what this reminder does. He writes, speaking of the word of God's forgiveness of sin in Christ. God's word enters our ears, reverberates within our hearts, and exits our mouth again as meditation, prayer, instruction, and praise. And we can never get enough of it. For as Luther says, it's always awakening new understanding, new pleasure, and a new spirit of devotion, and it constantly cleanses the heart and its meditations. Why? For these words are not idle or dead, but effective and living. This is why we need the reminder. We need this reminding to constantly stir up within us praise, adoration, meditation, all these wonderful things. And God's word in Christ is effective and living. This is God's way. He has brought Jacob home. He has reminded him of his word, of his promises. He's restating them. He's reinforcing all the things he's already said to him. Because Jacob is forgetful. We are forgetful. It's discipleship through repetition. The, the name of the book in our English Bibles, Deuteronomy, actually means repetition. means to double. And the reason God gave the law again is because they needed reminding. And so let's deuteronomize each other and remind each other of the gospel over and over and over. He calls us his church, his people, to gather together, to be together, to hear and to speak the words of our Savior. His words are, I love you, you're mine, you are forgiven, I will never leave you. This is the ordinary means of grace in the life of the believer. It's why we gather, it's why we need one another. Listen, we're all tempted with the idea of consumerism. You know, the idea that you can just kind of McDonald's your church life. You just show up, order at the drive through get your happy meal and go. You know, you can come in for an hour and you can sit, you can hear a nice little encouraging message and you can be about your business and go throughout your week and never think about it again because you got your three steps to a better life. But God calls us together uh, and, and he calls us to leave behind the idea of consumerism. He calls us into each other's lives. And so Grace Life, we need to be in each other's lives to feast on the banqueting table of God's grace together in the good times and in the bad times. During the week, you'll have a lot of voices feeding you all sorts of messages. Messages of not measuring up, not having value, not being good enough. And that's just the mild versions. And the, vo the volume of accusation and shame and guilt gets louder and louder and louder. And so gather together as often as you can because you and I need to hear the voice of our Savior spoken through our brothers and sisters, not just me or Mike on a Sunday morning, the priesthood of all believers. We need the gospel. Jacob needed the reminder. 
what happens next throughout chapter 35 is all part of this continual breaking of Jacob. Let's read uh, Genesis 35, 16 through 22, and then we'll read 27 and 28. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So the family departs Bethel. Why? We don't know, because God had said, go and dwell in Bethel. But he leaves, and tragedy strikes, and will keep striking. First, Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, is pregnant. She goes into labor. It's hard labor, and she dies in childbirth. And Jacob is, of course, devastated. And before she died, Rachel named the baby Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow. And Jacob renamed the baby Benjamin, son of my right hand. Her death is another marker in Jacob's life. She is buried, and Jacob builds a pillar over her grave on the way to Ephrath, which would later become Bethlehem. And this marker stood as a symbol of exile, a symbol of suffering. Second, another moment of heartbreak, Reuben sins against his father. Some scholars think that this is in retaliation against his father for how he didn't defend his daughter um, and the sister of of, of the 12 sons, Dinah, Reuben went and laid with his father's concubine, Bilhah. That was Rachel's servant. And she was the mother of some of Jacob's children. Now, in the culture of this time, this is the way that some sons or even people who were just lower in rank would often assert themselves into the new role of power, a way of accumulating power. When Absalom David's son led a revolt and a coup. He drove David from the palace and he slept with David's concubines to assert himself as the new leader. And before that, one of Saul's generals did something similar. And so it's possible that Reuben's actions declare that he no longer thinks that Jacob should be the family leader. And so he's asserting himself as the new leader. He's the new patriarch. He will lead the family. And it's just another example of the continued dysfunction over and over in this family. Now, remember this because this is going to come up later. At the end of this passage, we see Isaac's death. Isaac, who thought he was near death all those years ago when Jacob had to flee after his deception, lived far longer than was expected. Here at 180 years, he dies. His sons, Jacob and Esau, gather together and bury him. Another death, more breaking few years go by. Jacob's oldest son that was born to Rachel, Joseph, he's the apple of Jacob's eye. He just constantly is doting on him. He lavishes love onto Joseph, and often it's at the cost of the other brothers. And so they grow to hate Joseph, and they design a plan to get rid of him. 
One day, Joseph goes to the brothers to see how they're doing, and while they tend to their flocks, they scheme. They end up uh, selling Joseph into slavery. Again, you can find out more about that um, in the book of Genesis, or if you want, you can listen to some sermons on the Grace Life website. Uh, But they decide to tell their father that Joseph has been devoured by wild animals, and he is dead. And so in Genesis 37, 34, and 35, we see Jacob's response, and we can hear the brokenness of this man. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Jacob's actions his sins, his family's sin, the loss of all those that he loved, leaves this family broken. It leaves this man, excuse me, broken. And this certainly doesn't seem like what God had promised all those years ago. Go Liverpool. But we must remember, despite what it looks like on the surface, despite what... Um, it appears when you just read through this passage, God is at work. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago. God often does his most defining work in our lives during times of exile, during times of suffering, during times of brokenness. Jacob had heard of God's grace time and time again. He's been reminded of it time and time again. He has even experienced God's grace firsthand. And in the years to come, Jacob would finally be able to see things through the lens of grace. This broken man, limping for the rest of his days, by God's grace, would become a healed man. So a healed man, and it's um, kind of tongue-in-cheek because his name means heal, but we're also talking about being healed. Time moves forward. Around 20 years, Jacob lives believing that his son Joseph is dead. But Joseph was not dead. Joseph is yet alive. Rather, uh, Joseph has found himself in Egypt, and through God's many providences, he is made a ruler in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And during these years, which to, to Jacob were years of loss, he struggled with the deepest grief and sorrow. God was doing something that he couldn't even begin to fathom. And so something unbelievable takes place. After the other sons go to Egypt to get grain, uh, it's, a dur- it's during a time of famine, they discover that their brother is alive and he's a ruler in Egypt. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And Joseph invites his family to live in Egypt and Israel, and the family all move to Egypt, fulfilling God's words to Abraham when he said in Genesis 15 that his offspring would sojourn in a land, and there they would be servants for 400 years. Genesis 45, 26 and 27. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. A few verses later, verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet I'm sorry, a chapter later, went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. 
and their reunion is beautiful. It's moving. I mean, 17 or 20-ish years of tears, I'm sure, in this moment. They wept a good while. Jacob will have 17 more years with Joseph and his family here in Goshen in Egypt. Now, one of the reasons we ventured into this series from Genesis was uh, the series that we did in the book of Hebrews, specifically the 11th chapter of Hebrews, where the author mentions men and women from the Old Testament and their testimonies of faith. There, Jacob is mentioned. Uh, But what the author mentions is, to be honest, a little strange when you consider all the things he could have mentioned. Really, it's strange considering what's not mentioned there. It's, It's not the blessing. It's not the stairway from heaven. It's not the wrestling. It's not the reunions with Esau and, and Isaac, or even his reunion with Joseph. None of that is mentioned. Hebrews eleven twenty one. the author says this, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's the great faith of Jacob, that he blessed his grandsons. Let's dig in. What is the author referring to? Well, this is what will close out the life of Jacob. Chapters 47 through 49 are the final moments in his life. At the end of chapter 47, he calls for Joseph. Joseph comes and Jacob charges Joseph to bury him according to his wishes. He wants to be buried in the land of Canaan. He says, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. uh, Speaking of Abraham and Isaac's burying place. And Sarah as well. This was important to Jacob and his descendants as the land was uniquely tied to God's mercy and his promises to them. Jacob wants to be buried there because that's the place that God has chosen for him. Joseph swears he will do this, and it's with that, the same actions we saw with Abraham and his servant um, years ago, kind of a really odd way of swearing things, but Joseph swears with his hand under Jacob's thighs, uh, symbolizing the covenantal promises. Joseph's vow and the land are both tied to the covenant, and they're tied to God's promises. And so this vow is, is all connected, and it's all directing us, it's all pointing us ultimately to the promised seed, the Messiah who was to come. And so now Jacob will pronounce his final blessings upon the family. But a peculiar thing takes place in chapter 48. Before he calls all of his own sons to bless them, he calls Joseph and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. While in Egypt, Joseph has married an Egyptian woman, Asenath, the daughter of an Egyptian priest. And Manasseh was their firstborn, Ephraim the second. Genesis 48, 5 and 6, Jacob says this, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So in this bizarre moment, Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh, makes his grandsons legally his heirs, and they become his sons. If they are Jacob's sons, then they are co-heirs with all of his other sons. So they are being elevated to being the recipients of the blessing that Jacob is going to give his sons. What is even more crazy is not only that now they are Jacob's heirs, but they're actually given the firstborn status together. Because of Reuben's sin of sleeping with Bilhah, Jacob has removed Reuben from receiving the firstborn blessing, the birthright, um, as is mentioned later on in chapter 49. So Simeon and Levi would have been next, but they're both removed as well because of their anger and wrath. And so all these three are replaced with Joseph's sons. 
Joseph's sons, become the firstborn heirs of Jacob. And so he begins this formal blessing ceremony with Joseph and the sons. We'll read that. It's a pretty lengthy passage here. Genesis 48, 10 through 22. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. And he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. I'm going to borrow the Carey boys again. (laughs) Oliver and Whitaker, could you come here? So Jacob is old, and he can't really see too well. You guys can come stand in front of me and face me. All right, so the younger is placed on Jacob's left hand and the older is placed on Jacob's right hand. You guys lined up appropriately. Good job. And let's see if I can do this without damaging too much. Um, What Jacob does next is a little befuddling because he puts his left hand on the older and he puts his right hand on the younger. And Joseph sees this and he gets frustrated. He's like, no, 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 no. He starts to, you know, resort this thing. And I love what we'll see from Jacob as he reacts. So he's got his hands crisscrossed on the two sons. You guys can go have a seat. I know they just always wanted to be my object lessons. Thank you, guys. And he blessed Joseph and said, verse 15, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Joseph watches this happen. As I mentioned, he gets frustrated. He's displeased by this. He's placed the boys where they needed to be. The right hand is the hand of authority. It's the hand of blessing. It symbolizes strength. And Jacob crosses his arms. And Joseph assumes his father is mistaken because his eyes were weak. Kind of harkens back to Isaac, right? The blessing should go to the firstborn Manasseh. And I just love Jacob's reaction. I know, my son, I know. I believe what we're seeing here is for perhaps the first time in his life, 
Jacob is now seeing, he's truly seeing, even though his eyes are weak. Even though he's weakened in the flesh, he finally sees through the lens of grace, through eyes of faith. He's heard about it, he's experienced it, but now he sees through those eyes of faith. And you can hear it in the blessing, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. Jacob finally sees God not as a means of getting, not just as just merely a means of blessing, not just as something to be consumed, but as a shepherd and redeemer. He has walked and now he limps with God. He's conversed with the angel. And again, the angel isn't the best rendering of this. This is the messenger. Again, he's referring to the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus that he's met with a few times and wrestled once. The man who was a schemer, the man who has fled, the man who was eventually tricked himself, the man who was broken beneath a tremendous weight of grief has been healed. Now he sees God as shepherd and redeemer. He sees grace. To make things even more interesting, in chapter 49, he calls his other sons to him and he begins to bless them. And in this blessing that he he gives to each of his sons, he preaches the gospel and he prophesies. We'll pass over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Again, you can read about those in your own time. But he's removed them from receiving the birthright and the blessing. And it's clear in what he says over them. Jacob has strong feelings on birthrights and blessings. That's evident. These are the words he speaks over Judah, the fourth, the fourth born son. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So Judah receives this amazing blessing. And what he's receiving is uh, nothing less than the blessing of the covenant, the blessing of the promise given to Abraham. It's the blessing of the messianic line. It will go through Judah. Joseph's sons receive the birthright, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the lion's share of the inheritance. But Judah will receive the covenant blessing. There's just two things I want to draw out here. First, this is Jacob preaching the gospel. Jesus is who is in sight here in this prophetic blessing. The ruler to come through Judah is the promised Messiah, the promised speed, the, the promised seed. And he's using Old Testament prophetic language. Uh, it sounds a little maybe mysterious and odd to our ears, but this is Old Testament prophetic language. Jacob is describing in Judah the Messiah who is to come. He will be a lion. And the book of Revelation calls him the Lion of Judah. His kingdom will know no end. His rule will have no lack. So much so that you could wash your garments, you could wash your clothes in wine because there's just so much wine. 
and your teeth will be whiter than milk, which historically is a sign of wealth. There will be no lack of good things. You'll be able to tie your donkey up in a vineyard and not, worthy, not worry whether he's going to eat the choice grapes because there's just so many. This is all speaking of the spiritual blessings that as new covenant believers, we receive already. And it's the real tangible blessings to come when Jesus returns and establishes kingdom on this earth. Second, choosing Judah teaches us, teaches us something about grace. I mean, Reuben, out. Simeon and, and uh, Levi, out. You might be thinking, well, Judah must have been a really upright son. He must have been a good dude, right? No. Judah, back in Genesis 38, slept with his daughter-in-law. This family is a mess. I hope that is clear by now. All of our time in Genesis, this family is a mess. It's not that the other brothers got passed over because of their unrighteousness and Judah was selected because of his righteousness. Simply put, God just works differently than we do. He has selected Judah because that was his plan. Not because of merit, but to show us a little bit more about grace. This world would have picked Reuben, the strong, self-reliant, assertive leader. We would have selected Joseph. He was the faithful son, and he was wise. But God chose Judah to be the one whose line the Messiah would come through. Judah, the fourth-born son, born to Leah, the unloved wife. God chooses the undeserving, the outsider, the outcast, the unwanted. God reverses the expected narrative. And Jacob is finally seeing that. He chooses Judah over Reuben or Joseph. He chooses Ephraim over Manasseh and both of these over Reuben. He chose Jacob over Esau. God is always flipping what we would expect. And so Jacob is now seeing that through the lens of grace, through the eyes of faith. And that is not because of birthright. It's not because of strength. It's not because of cunning. It's not because of wisdom. It's not because of beauty. It's not because of wealth. It's because of grace. It's because of grace that God chooses any of us. Now, Jacob's story does come to an end here. Though, if we're being honest, Jacob's story doesn't really end with his death. After all, as it's said in the New Testament, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Jacob is yet alive, though he has died in this earthly frame. At the end of chapter 49 and verse 33, we read, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The heel drew his feet up into the bed, and he breathed his last. All of Egypt, uh, as you can read in chapter 50, would mourn his death. They would hold a period of mourning for 70 days, two days shorter than the period of mourning for their pharaohs. Jacob would be buried in the land of Canaan as he made Joseph promise. So what does the gospel of Jacob speak to us today? The gospel of Jacob is a message of crazy, scandalous grace and mercy. 
that God would choose people to be part of his work and his chosen family that were schemers, deceivers, liars. They were unfaithful. They were half-hearted sometimes at best. And all were sinners. In this portion of Jacob's story, we see that the crazy thing about grace is how often God does the unexpected for his purposes. And in that, we do see the gospel. God chooses the outsider, the foolish, the ones passed over by the rest of the world and sometimes the rest of the church. The younger over the older. Jacob over Esau. The half-Hebrew, half-Egyptian children of Joseph over the full sons of Jacob. Judah over Reuben. But it's not just here in Jacob's story. It permeates the whole story of redemption. It was Abel over Cain. It was Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Leah over Rachel. Perez over Zerah. Joseph's sons over Reuben. Judah over Reuben, Rahab the prostitute and outsider, Gideon over all the other leaders and tribes of Israel, really all the judges of Israel over anybody else, literally anybody else, Ruth the Moabite, an outsider, David over his seven brothers, David over Saul, and on and on and on, finally culminating in Jesus, the second Adam over the first Adam, the stable over the palace, a servant over all earthly power. And who did Jesus call to himself? It was the prostitutes, the robbers, the thieves, the tax collectors, all of these over the religious leadership. Grace over law, the new covenant over the old covenant, the blood of the lamb over the blood of many lambs. Jesus' one-time sacrifice over all the other sacrifices, life through death, victory through defeat. And now because of all of that, we, you and I, can be gathered in, not just Israel's descendants alone, but the promises are now given to you and I as well. All of us have been grafted in to the church, God's Israel, by the the shedding of blood, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. As Jacob, by faith, came to see and to trust, Jesus is our shepherd and our redeemer. He takes our broken, sinful past and he heals us through his death and resurrection. And we receive all of this by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ today. Lord, we thank you that you take the foolish things of this world, despising the world's wisdom. You take the outsider, the broken, the one despised, the one who, according to the world's standards, has nothing to offer. And you adopt us as your sons and daughters. We become your heirs. Heirs of blessing, heirs of promise, heirs of eternal life. We have all of this because of our older brother, Jesus Christ. Father, I just ask that for anyone in here who is going through a 
maybe extended season of brokenness. Lord, that you would bring healing. And Lord, you would work in hearts and lives to trust. Help us to take the experience that we're going through, the suffering, the sadness, the sorrow, the loss, and help us to turn that into trust for you. That we trust you despite the pain, despite the the stuff that we're going through. Give us eyes to see like Jacob saw. You are our shepherd and our redeemer. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.